0: Hey guys, welcome back. Welcome to part two of episode 14 of Delta, the fixed income podcast brought to you by the International Business of Federated Hermes. I'm joined again by Andre Kuznetsov, Senior Portfolio Manager to analyze uh, in part one, the past events of the last 12 months in credit markets. And now we're gonna be focusing on the road ahead. Uh, We looked at the last year, we discussed our mistakes. Uh, We looked at how we mitigated those mistakes, what we've learned, which events surprised us most. And and we closed with what's changed in markets, which sets us up well for a discussion of the range of scenarios that we anticipate emerging over these six and 12 months from here. So let's dive straight into the questions, Andre. Um, Before we talk about opportunities, what do we think of fundamentals?
1: I think it's... Safe to say that we'll not be at the same level of cash flow generation across uh, the market for a while. And expectations have recovered quite well. If we think about, for example, Citi Economic Surprise Index globally, you will see how those expectations have dipped and data has disappointed. And then a V-shaped recovery, definitely on the expectation side. Whereas on the hard data side... We are seeing more like, uh, I'm not sure what the shape uh, that is, but it's definitely not a V, maybe a a W or something along those lines. And the reality is that for some businesses, the cash flow generation will never go back to pre-COVID level because of the structural changes across many of the sectors. Turning to the single name and what we are hearing from our analysts, they are Definitely feeling more confident after having two earning seasons, and giving companies time to plan for the new normal, and adjust their business models. And already for the companies that are doing better, we are seeing them paying back RCFs, and in some cases even um, returning some of that capex that they that they cancelled early in the year. But that's definitely only at the higher rating end of spectrum and definitely companies that are less impacted by uh, COVID 19 and we expect the rest of the market to be quite conservative and importantly for us the behavior of corporates is in a sweet spot so as the downgrades have taken a turn for the worse and as we've discussed in the previous um episode or part one of this uh, podcast, Uh, the pace of downgrades was uh, surprising. And a lot of companies had to respond to that with drawing on RCFs, with canceling all the equity holder returns to equity holders and cutting down on CapEx and announcing cost-cutting programs as well. And we think that will remain the case for a while. And this is very good for credit holders. We want companies to really care about their credit profile. And at the same time, as we've discussed in part one, there's a lot more of the holistic thinking about returns to different stakeholders. And I think we might have to wait a little bit longer for dividends to come back, which is good for uh investors in in the credit part of the spectrum and this is particularly true in the banking space for example where banks this time around are seen as a part of the solution and not the problem so they kind of went from being villains in 2008 to more like superheroes uh, this time around but the flip side of that is that governments are likely to continue to be more conservative on what they allow banks to return to shareholders just because of the sheer amount of support that they are getting uh, from from governments at the moment. On the more technical side, I think the supply was actually also quite interesting this year. And we've cu- discussed a few interesting points in the first part, but I'll keep uh, repeating this day because there are so many uh, interesting things this year. So we started the year with very strong supply just because the yields were attractive and because we had election in the biggest economy in the world in the second half of the year. So everybody rushed to come to the market. And then we had uh, a dry of new issue supply in March because nobody could come to market. And then slowly companies started to issue to rebuild liquidity, to have a longer runway. As we have discussed in part one, there was a lot of focus on how much, how long can companies survive if we stay in the lockdown mode, if things don't change. And I think companies with the help of central banks uh, access the market to build up some of that uh, liquidity. And since then, we've had record amount of supply across uh, investment grade and high yield definitely in the US, across investment grade in Europe, uh, and maybe a little bit lower in the grand scheme of things in emerging markets and European uh, high yield, where maybe the support from the central bank on the high yield side wasn't as strong as it, it is in the US. And going forward, I think the supply will surprise to the upside. I think consensus is that we'll have less supply because we've had so much issued. But I think absent significant pickup in volatility, which is possible, there's a big opportunity for corporates to now come to market and actually refinance higher coupon debt because yields, uh, for example, investment grade, global investment grade yields are at all-time lows of roughly 1.5%. That's a pretty attractive market. But importantly, for credit holders, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Of course, they're taking bonds away from you, but they're not issuing incremental debt. It's more about uh, refinancing. On the other side of that, flows. Flows were quite strong at the start of the year because of the reach for yield. We've definitely experienced outflows during the first, uh, first quarter and maybe even first half of the year, but then the inflows have recovered quite uh, dramatically because of the reasons we've discussed in the first part of this podcast around the reach for reliable income, the fact that a lot of investors in this environment want something relatively safe and credit seats higher than equity in the capital structure. They want mandatory coupons. They don't want discretionary returns like equities, like you see in equities. And also, in general, we have an aging population, what they call in papers, silver tsunami, with a lot of people in general just de-risking and looking to be more defensively positioned. So overall, I think fundamentals and technicals are on demand, but the healing process is not over yet.
0: That's great, André. Just wanted to also reiterate one of the points you made about fundamentals there, which is that, you know, as I as I speak to the analysts, the visibility around future earnings, around, um, you know, what, comp- what levers companies can draw upon is much, much higher now than it was a couple of months ago. And I think many of our analysts are now eagerly anticipating third quarter numbers because they have a good sense of what the expectation should be on third quarter. And it's not just the result of a random number generator. So they're back into a more normal mindset of, I expect this to occur. My downside case is this. My Armageddon case is this. And I know where I can score it. Whereas I think you know, many of those second quarter numbers were just really you know throwing darts at a board and very difficult to interpret them um, on on that sort of more traditional model uh, base. So it means that our footing is slightly stronger as as we look at um rv in credit which is where my where my next question leads us where are the opportunities when we look across the spectrum and you know one of the things that we pride ourselves on is looking for views driving alpha through those views what do we think about rv where are the areas that you like and those that you dislike
1: I think there are plenty of opportunities in the market. But first, if we start on absolute base, I think it's it's always important to just take a step back and think about is credit attractive before you going to where are the opportunities in the market because there will always be opportunities in the market. But looking at global high yield and global investment grade, global high yield is 30% wider from February tights and investment grade is only 10% wider so as one would expect investment grade has done much better uh, relative and that's because of the all the central bank support that we've discussed over the past 40 uh, or so minutes at the same time also convexity or the capital appreciation potential within global high yield is much better than it was at the start of the year and for anyone considering high yield you need I think you need to have Uh, an element of that. At the same time, there are all the bright signs that credit relative to other parts of the the market is looking uh, attractive at the moment with some caveats. But you have to keep in mind, 30% wider is 120 basis points. But 120 basis points is not the same when you have yields, government bond yields at 4% or you have government bond yields at 50 basis points. So it's quite a significant pickup that you get, even though, again, you have to find the fine balance between the reach for spread or yield and the fact that default environment remains elevated. Talking about opportunities within global credit universe, Starting with regions, I think investment grade is less distorted in the US than it is in Europe. Partly that has to do, there's a little bit more cyclicality there in in the US, but also the programs that you have in the US and Europe are different. In US, you just have the focus on the front end of investment grade curves, whereas in Europe, they are buying the whole lot. And that suppresses the, the spreads uh, quite a bit. On the high yield side, I think it becomes a little bit more uh, nuanced. I think just from the valuation perspective, they are roughly equal, but the story is slightly different because the makeup is different. In the US, you have a few more opportunities on the cyclical side because that's a bigger part of the universe. And in Europe, you definitely have more opportunities on the defensive side in the packaging and telco space and in the financials emerging markets emerging markets again in times of volatility you have to you have to think more about it from idiosyncratic perspective because it might look that investment grade em is looking attractive because you don't have that central bank buyer buying up those bonds unlike uh, what we have in a uh, developed market. But at the same time, uh, emerging markets have fewer tools, I think, to manage uh, the environment. The inflation picture is not as good as it is in Europe. So you, it's much harder to create money. There's a lot more debt there in a non-local currency. So it's much easier for Fed to keep uh, printing that in their own currency than some of the emerging markets. So you, in the end, you have to do go case by case. There are still plenty of opportunities for with big issuers that have good banking relationships that are key in this environment. You have corporates that are not just exposed to the domestic market, but are exposed to outside of the country that have more diversified sources of uh, revenue and that is key when you have different parts of the world uh, being impacted by covid19 to a different uh, extent and maybe in different stages and big employers the other thing we've learned this year is that bigger companies that are big employers benefit the most from government and central bank support and it makes sense because you get the biggest Uh, bang for your buck when you're supporting those companies rather than smaller uh, private equity companies that are not going to move the needle in terms of the overall uh, economic environment.
0: I was just trying to um, think back in in terms of RV. Does our traditional sort of thought pattern uh, continue to exist in terms of um, things that have underperformed look better value or have we had to tear up that rule book and and are we continuing to hold on to that re-underwrite everything as we analyze the world now you you talked in part one about the need to just go back and say you know can these companies survive has that meant that in answering the question about rv we've had to completely shift our process or we are we heading back towards a more normal um rv comparison
1: Uh, i think we can um talk there to the fact that in this environment, fundamental um, ingredient, like the fundamental part of the overall uh, attractiveness of an opportunity is, is having a bigger impact mm-hmm. than maybe just relative value, given just the higher default environment and the fact that it's not just about relative value they actually actually uh, default risk out there? Is this something along these lines that you're thinking, or you're thinking something more dramatic?
0: No, I think that's exactly the point that I would make um, for our listeners. I think, to be honest, the, 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 the fact that we were struggling with a description of what this recovery looks like, uh, whether it's a V or a Nike swoosh or, or, or a W, as you, you alluded to, I think it definitely feels like a K. Many people are talking about a K. So there appear to be winners and losers. And I think that one, because you, as you rightly you set out, there is plenty of alpha uh, out there. One doesn't need to stretch as far as one might think, given what you said, i.e. investment grade is 10% wider than the tights and high yield is 30% wider than the tights. There's still plenty to do. And I think that that leaves me in a position where our RV shouldn't be pushing us to do the stuff that feels feels racy or the stuff that you know we might feel uncertain about i think there is a degree to which we need to continue to be cautious because of the level of uncertainty that we uh, continue to see but you've rightly pointed to you know fundamentals 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 and maybe a slightly higher weighting to fundamentals now than we might have had you know 12 or 18 months ago so andre if i may um when we're talking about the rv um maybe you can just split it up a little and and give me a sense for how the weightings might have changed between fundamentals and technicals and whether there's been a shift in the way that you would allocate within your mind to each of those um, factors.
1: Sure. I think the fundamental change year to date was that you have to pay more attention to the uh, fundamentals, i.e., when everything is rosy from the macro perspective it's all about looking at the relative value thinking which areas look cheap versus others what looks cheap versus the index versus each other because you don't have big changes in the underlying fundamentals that's not always the case but I'm talking about majority of the market and what we've had this time and we've discussed in much detail in the first part of this uh, Podcast is that there are fundamental and structural changes in many industries, and many historical relationships are not likely to revert to mean. And as a result, you need to put a bigger weight on the actual makeup of what you're looking at from the fundamental standpoint, from the cash flow standpoint, and how does that part of the global fixed income or global credit. Is looking on a forward-looking basis from the fundamental side.
0: So, having having covered that slightly change in weight, slight change in weighting off, um, maybe move on now to credit quality for us.
1: Yes, of course. I think now is not to go down in quality, and you need to be more nuanced in the way you approach, particularly more idiosyncratic stories. And I would rather take the. Subordination risk instead in higher quality issuers. But looking at some relationships, double Bs are trading at two standard deviations cheap to triple Bs on a 10 year horizon. So there's plenty of that fallen angels premium still. And this is also being exacerbated by the central bank action we've had this year. So there are plenty of opportunities within the fallen angels space. Their convexity is getting a little bit worse in that part of the market, but as long as you invest with conviction in a high active share portfolio, you'll be all right. High yield overall is relatively attractive to investment grade because there's less support for it, with the caveat you need to go case by case basis. We've mentioned earlier that the curves have flattened and even investment grade curves have inverted this year, and there's still some. Opportunities at the front end of the curves, for example, in Europe, where you don't have the technical like you have from the Fed supporting the front end of uh, the curves. So I would say in general versus pre-COVID, I would run lower spread duration uh, portfolios uh, on average. Sectors, there's always plenty of opportunity, but I'll highlight a couple. Home builders is a perfect mix of where relative value and fundamentals come together market underestimated the impact of lower mortgage rates and the fact that a lot of the younger population that used to rent is now looking to buy outside of uh, cities, and that's helping. Also, as you remember, home builders were the eye of the storm in, during the global financial crisis, and people still think there will be... Uh, this will be the case this time around, even though there are many structural changes in the industry since then. Autos under a lot of pressure, undoubtedly, and you have to be really picky. For example, preferring OEMs versus suppliers. But I think front end of auto curves still remain very flat, and there's a lot of that paper, and that's attractive for income generation. Other than that, stick with non-cyclicals for quite a big part of your portfolios, telcos and packaging. Don't expect them to create much if we continue rallying from here, but I think they build a good foundation for the portfolio, what is likely to be a volatile um, few months uh, until we end this year. As I've mentioned, subordination premium. I would rather own subordinate securities of investment grade issuers because they work quite well in an environment where you have to balance the reach for spread with heightened default environment. Financials, hard to avoid the fact that low rates are not a great environment for the P&L side of the equation. equation. But they've built good buffers. They are part of the solution this time around. And in general, the, some part of the financials universe is be- benefiting from the dividend cuts within that space with more capital moving into credit for that uh, reliable income. And there, a mix of tier twos and additional tier ones, I think depending on the bank and the region will work well.
0: Just picking you up there on financials, Andre, uh, maybe you could comment on where credit sits versus equity uh, within financials. I, note that equity is uh, within banks has had a really really tough time despite you perceiving them to be superheroes this time around uh, but credit has done reasonably well versus that equity performance does that continue to
1: mean that credit is is a strong proposition i think versus some of the previous episodes uh for example if we're looking at the, at the more subordinated financials for example i'm thinking early 2016 or even earlier than that with it was a smaller asset class it was less followed there was a much worse level of volatility and the asset class have performed quite well this year the one added benefit is they those securities tend to be quite liquid and it's relative and it's very um, valuable in an environment like this and i think as investors think about uh, their the exposure to banks and when they think about how what seems a differentiation from the regulator's standpoint between paying dividends and paying coupons on even subordinated financials, all that leads to um, a stronger case for financials in this environment.
0: Got it. And, and personally agree, I think it's a, if you are going to take risk within... Credit land, it does feel like a really interesting space because of that virtuous cycle between central banks, governments and their domestic banks. And, you know, I think they will continue to need them, given the, the pace of recovery that the underlying economies are taking versus markets. Okay, so let's move on to the next phase and talk about one or two of the catalysts for change that you expect. Um I could throw in US elections, that's probably the starting point, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that will drive uh, spreads over the next four months and probably the three of them are US elections and related China trade war. Brexit and COVID-19, I think on the US election front, it will undoubtedly see a spike in volatility. And you can see that already in the options market where implied volatility is higher around the election period. I think it's too early to tell uh, what's going to happen. If you remember, Hillary was leading the last time around as well. And look where we ended up best course of action is to continue scrutinizing the election campaigns of both sides and thinking how that impacts the portfolio. I'm thinking about the healthcare or hospital sectors in particular. I'm thinking about energy here. And that is probably the best course of action as, to be honest, I don't have any insight in what's going to happen. Brexit, Probably slightly less important uh, in the grand scheme of things, but definitely important for us over here in in the UK. And it's not our first rodeo in this saga. Similar situation to US elections. I think you need to understand implications by sector and people spent the past three years thinking about that. Have to be careful with domestic businesses where you don't have enough premiums in it particularly when you take into account the level of recoveries uh, we had this year in this crisis. So you need to be careful there. At the same time, there are opportunities in sterling bonds of global issuers, and there are some opportunities in financials. So I think that it brings both risks and opportunities to the table. COVID-19, one thing I would say first is we are better prepared now. Now we have a plan. There's less improvisation. And as I've mentioned earlier, improvisation brings uh, heightened uncertainty. The progress on vaccine will be closely watched. And I think it will provide incremental support as we have approvals. But I think from the point where we get an approval to where all the population has access to it, there's a very uh, long uh, process there. And that means that it will take a time for the market to, I think, fully price that, uh, price that in. What it means for portfolios, still have to be careful with cyclicality premium within your portfolios. Okay. Think about, are you getting paid for that uh, extra cyclicality premium in an environment like this?
0: Okay, great. Let's rattle through a few questions and, and answer them quickly. Um, what are your thoughts on rates and duration?
1: Rates are staying lower for longer, for sure, just because of the amount of debt created this year, and it's more painful to raise rates when debt levels are high. You have convergence between US and Europe. It's key. Market is a bit more cautious on its ability to hedge and looking for other options, like credit options. Uh, supply is definitely going up because you need to fund all of that um, fiscal support that is coming. and more to come probably and we'll see how how much of its central banks will monetize deflation environment is a consensus and i think if we have for some reason whether it's supply chain or supply a spike in inflation or rates it will be very painful because duration for the global credit universe for global investment grade is at highs got it
0: okay second rattle through them question um I can guess what you're going to say, but what are, you, what are your thoughts on volatility going forward?
1: We are already seeing some pickup in volatility over the past few days, and the options markets is suggesting that we'll see a pickup around the election, and realized volatility is slowly starting to catch up to that. But the reality is, the more you suppress volatility via central bank action, and the more you have reach for yield, that and inflows into asset class which again suppress volatility the bigger the pop and we got a flavor of it in the first quarter this year and i think some instruments will work better than others in the new normal of heightened spikes in volatility
0: yeah definitely you know the spring is becoming coiled again for that volatility to pop as and when uh, we see it in fact we've seen over the last couple of days before recording some pretty big drawdowns in equity land but it's yet to affect um, credit um, massively and credit vol. Okay, next one, liquidity. What's going to happen to liquidity? Have we, was uh, what we saw during the crisis the worst case scenario for liquidity and have we improved liquidity from there?
1: Liquidity has improved from the lows, but liquidity has not fully normalized. And we'll just have to live with the lower level of it and diversify a little bit more. I'll be honest, with compared to where we started that year, I'm thinking about uh, running a little bit more diversified portfolios, focusing a little bit more on the most liquid part of the market and using the most liquid instruments such as index and options uh, for risk management purposes. Since global financial crisis, we've had liquidity move towards large cap structures and because of the regulation and electronic trading only contributed to that. And that only con- the trend only continued um, this year. And I think asset allocators will pay particular attention to liquidity and the liquidity of underlying securities because of the stories like H2O and i think the realization in the market that if the march situation continued for a couple of more weeks we would have had many more gating of funds that focus at the on the less liquid part of the market
0: so when when you talk about diversity you're no longer thinking about diversity just for risk management purposes in terms of you know the, the credit risk now you're thinking about diversity as a as a a, a line of defense in terms of liquidity as well uh, in underlying asset classes, you know, structured credit versus corporate credit, um, leverage loans versus bonds, CDS versus bonds. Is that the way I should receive that?
1: Absolutely. You need to have a flexible approach and have, cast a wider net and look at a bigger part of the universe and think about at what point in time, what market offers the best liquidity and take advantage of that.
0: Okay. And uh, last of my rapid questions before we wrap up with all options on the table is uh, where would credit markets be right now if we didn't have central bank support?
1: I think it's not just the credit markets. Equity markets are even more sensitive to the central bank action because they fix the funding markets and funding markets are key for equity market performance. And of course, not even talking about the discount rates that is used in valuing equities here. I think recovery would have been slower and default rates higher. But I think central banks did the right thing before things really got out of control. Hence that comment early around a few extra weeks before uh, all hell would would have broken loose, um, if that's the expression. Um, And I think the last thing I would say is, for me, the recent reaction to Fed meeting is a bit worrying expectations are quite high i think the average inflation targeting is bullish uh, even though it's further inflating the the bubble and yield control could come next or support for high yield uh, in europe from the central bank but the fact that market has very high expectations and if you remember jaco when we were in the march period at some point we also had central banks um, doing uh, announcing uh, new programs and the market wasn't reacting i think it's the flip side of that
0: i think that's that's a really good observation that's a really good observation for now actually uh, and i think that that's something that you know w- want to emphasize because i think not in uh, too few people are take paying attention to that
1: well we'll see what the uh, the next 12 months uh, brings us but uh, thank you for having me today and um, we'll speak uh, in a year's time.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, let's close with all options on the table, um, which, which as always is a, is a question that we have in uh, from a listener. Um, but in this instance, actually, we got it from uh, an internal conversation that we had. And we, we have two people who I, I will um, mention on the podcast, Michael Russell and Stefan Michel. Um, Stefan is uh, as bearish as you can get, and in all circumstances is always struggling to find a silver lining. To his cloud, and Michael uh, is always the person that we bring on to calls if we want to feel more positive about the world, and and always seems to see upside. I think both of those two characteristics, both of those two biases, of which they're both of course aware, have egg on their face. Um, you know, the bulls really got their um, bottoms handed to them through this crisis, and even when you know they were encouraging people to buy the dip, they really weren't realizing how bad things could get. But the bears have had a similarly chastening uh, experience since the depths of the crisis. So do either of them have a great deal of credibility in terms of predicting what happens from here, or should we just be starting afresh and not listening to either either of these and trying to be a little more rational?
1: I think, if if anything, um more skewed to downside. I think looking at the next three, four months, I think there are definitely more risks there. And given how much the valuations have come in, again, since February, and combining that with the fundamental bottom-up views that I'm getting from our analyst uh, team, I think we are up for a pickup in volatility over the next three, four months. Having said that, as you have mentioned earlier, I think we have a much better grasp of what the businesses are looking like in the new normal and how they will behave and how they will adapt, which puts us in a good position to take advantage of the next bout of volatility to access the most interesting uh, parts of the market. So I think we've learned quite a bit. Uh, this year, and we've discussed this in parts 1 and this part as well. And that sets us up quite well for the next 12 months.
0: Yeah, André, thank you very much for uh, your diplomacy. Um, I'm going to try and be uh, more consistent with what we set out to achieve on the podcast and and really put my cards on the table and uh, tell you that actually, I think markets are medium term in great shape. I think markets can continue to deliver reasonable uh, upside from here, both equity markets and credit markets. But actually, I think short term, there is almost nothing on the upside. Uh, and I think that you know the recent period of volatility we've saw, seen over the last few days are just uh, a vestige of what we're likely to see if we see uh, the saber rattling that I could expect if Mr. Trump is not getting... Um, the uptick in um, acceptance from the U.S. voters that he hopes going into uh, the election. So I'm looking at November as a period of heightened volatility. After that, I think it will be a great time to invest again. So that's my answer. So that's it uh, for episode 14 of the Delta, uh, brought to you by the international business of Federated Hermes. Thank you so much to Andre for coming back one year later to reprise our um, earlier episode where we look back in the fourth quarter of 2018 and the first quarter of 2019, making uh, predictions for the year ahead. We've made some predictions for the year ahead, and I'm going to close with my three key takeaways, as I always try to do. Um, The first for me, and thinking about fixed income as an asset class, is that The path for rates is much clearer now than it was 12 months ago. And what I mean by that is, particularly in the US, it looks very unlikely that we'll see a a large uptick in inflation and a commensurate large uptick in interest rates. And I think that is a major change when you think about asset allocation. That means that credit sits quite well. And coupled with my second key takeaway, which is. Andre's mention of the fact that income is still available if you're a fixed income investor through coupons and the actual asset quality of high yield markets has improved through lots of those lower end of investment grade names moving into uh, high yield. But the third thing it has also improved the asset quality of high yield, which is that we've been through a period of cleansing. We've had a few really, really large corporates around the world that have been through a bankruptcy or restructuring cycle as a result of this crisis. And that has accelerated um, some of these companies that were already weak to go through bankruptcy. Um, Andre and I both agree that we will see more bankruptcies and, and the level of default bankruptcy and loss within credit markets is likely to be higher over the next 12 months than they were in the 12 months prior to the last time we did this reprise. Um, maybe not quite as high as we've seen over the last six months, but certainly expect to see defaults. And for that reason, I think we have to be very, very balanced and very mindful of risk. There is also plenty of tail risk uh, within markets, and I wouldn't. It would be remiss of me not to mention uh, Neil Williams, who has been talking uh, endlessly about the Japanification of central banking activity and the way in which that has impacted underlying economies and that read through to markets. I don't think it's been sufficient, that there must be a price to pay for the central bank hyper. So that's it from me for today. Thank you again to Andre. Thanks to you, our listeners. And I look forward to sharing perspectives of our team next time. Stay safe and speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the international business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.